Welcome to That's What She Said, a podcast of sermons at Galileo Christian Church, Disciples of Christ. Galileo exists to seek and shelter spiritual refugees, who for us are people for whom the church has become boring, irrelevant, exclusive, or even painful, especially people who have been pushed out because of their gender or sexuality. If you yourself are a spiritual refugee, we're especially glad you're listening. We're in a worship series right now called Once Upon a Time, Meet the Ancestors. These ancestors from the Bible who are important to us because of their encounters with God, because of how they learned and shared what they knew of God's nature and character. The thing is, we know who God is in part because these old timers told their stories and because their stories were preserved in our sacred text. The most important thing to remember when we're reading these old-timer stories is that no matter who seems to be at center stage, God is the capital P protagonist of the entire Bible. If you did not hear the sermon last week, I'm going to be bold and maybe kind of a pain in the ass and suggest that you listen to at least the first few minutes of it, where I talk about letting the stories of the Bible be about what they are about namely about the God of the universe who wants to be in relationship with the people of this planet and who keeps finding ways to introduce more of God's self to us. For tonight, we're picking up in the book of Genesis. We're skipping ahead now from Genesis 12 to Genesis 32, reading the last part of that chapter and the first part of chapter 33. Last week, we remembered Abraham and Sarah. They indeed had a son, Isaac. Isaac married Rebekah, and Isaac and Rebekah had twin boys, Esau, the firstborn, and Jacob, the second. This is a story about Jacob. The same night, Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two maids, and his 11 children and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and likewise everything that he had. Jacob was left alone and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he struck him on the hip socket and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then the man said, let me go for the day is breaking. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So the man said to him, what is your name? And Jacob said, Jacob. Then the man said, you shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with humans and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, "Mm, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, for I have seen God face to face, and yet my life is preserved. The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the Israelites do not eat the thigh muscle that is on the hip socket because he struck Jacob on the hip socket at the thigh muscle. Now Jacob looked up and saw Esau coming and 400 men 
with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two maids. He put the maids with their children in front, then Leah with her children and Rachel and Joseph last of all. He himself went on ahead of them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near his brother. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him and they wept. When Esau looked up and saw the women and children, he said, who are these with you? Jacob said, the children whom God has graciously given your servant. Then the maids drew near they and their children and bowed down. Leah likewise and her children drew near and bowed down. And finally, Joseph and Rachel drew near and they bowed down. Esau said, what do you mean by all this company that I met? Jacob answered, to find favor with my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. Jacob said, no, please, if I find favor with you, then accept my present from my hand, for truly to see your face is like seeing the face of God since you have received me with such favor. Please accept my gift that is brought to you because God has dealt graciously with me and because I have everything I want. So he urged him and he took it. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Calf roping also known as tie-down roping, a rodeo event where the cowboy, cowgirl, cowperson, on horseback throws a lariat around a calf's neck, jumps off the horse, flips the calf on its back, and ropes three of its legs together real fast so the calf can't move. Also, calf rope. What we squealed in my family of origin if the tickling or teasing or even physical fighting had gone on too long. Calf rope meant stop, and it was always honored. See also, uncle. With that out of the way, let's catch up with our story. From last week, God called Abram and promised him land and descendants, i.e. a future. And Abraham believed God, and God reckoned that belief as Abraham's righteousness. No religious requirements, just his trust that God could and would do what God could, said God could and would do. God called, God promised, God reckoned. And that's where we left off last week. Since then, Abraham and Sarah did end up having a child, Isaac, the son of their laughter. And Isaac married Rebekah. And Rebekah had twins, bless her, after a difficult pregnancy during which she suffered the brother's ongoing prenatal wrestling match. Esau came out first, affording him all the rights of the firstborn. But Jacob could hardly wait his turn, clutching his tiny baby fingers around his brother's tiny baby foot and coming out on the same push. Yaakov, they named him, heel grabber, or 
one who supplants or tricksy cheater or watch out for this one because he's going to be trouble. And he was. All those things. As the boys grew, they fought and fought and their parents took sides, making a bad situation worse. And Jacob, the mama's boy, Jacob, the heel grabber, spent his days scheming about how to get more than he deserved according to the laws of inheritance and birth order. He stole. He stole from their father. He stole from Esau more than once, finally wrecking those relationships so thoroughly that Esau swore to kill him the next time he saw him, and it was not the hyperbole of your typical sibling rivalry. So Jacob ran, and he stayed away a long, long time, long past the time that both his parents had passed on, long enough for him to marry couple times, and have kids, lots of them, and wouldn't you know it, long enough to cheat his father-in-law out of tons of money with an elaborate plan it took months and seasons to complete. To be fair, his father-in-law, Laban, had cheated Jacob first and more than a couple times, but Jacob knew how to even that kind of score. So he was, in Jacob's own way, very successful, quite prosperous, with at least one wife, we're told, who loved him. (laughs) But he was still a foreigner on someone else's land, just like his grandfather Abraham before him, no closer to the promise of God than before. And now, on top of everything else, Laban wanted to kill him too. That's when God told Jacob it was time to go home. Home where you'll remember Esau waits, as far as Jacob knows, to kill him on first sight. He can't stay with Laban, though, so Jacob starts planning and praying. Yes, both. Jacob the schemer is also Jacob, who has a strong sense of God's presence and protection. He plans, he prays, and he packs, carefully arranging his family and his livestock and all that he holds dear, So that Esau, when he receives word that Jacob approaches his territory, will have a strong visual of Jacob's success and generosity. Because there will be gifts, oh yes, many gifts, presented successively by waves of wives and concubines and children, themselves signs of Jacob's prosperity. He hopes his big brother will believe that Jacob the taker can also be Jacob the giver, trading the fruit of his labor for Esau taking him back. The gifts are perhaps less about Jacob's generosity than about his confidence in his own ability to make a shrewd deal. But before Jacob can get to Esau, something really weird happens. Something straight out of the Twilight Zone or Twin Peaks or Black Mirror or Midnight Gospel, choose your TV era, a plot twist so strange that it defies articulation and leaves more room for interpretation than perhaps any other story our ancestors in faith left for us. Here's how it goes down, more or less. The caravan, all of them, they stop for the night and camp. And at this midpoint, kind of, Between two dangers, Laban back there and Esau out there, 
Jacob chooses to sleep alone as a bulwark between his treasures, his people, and Laban, just in case that old man comes after him again. Oh yeah, he's already chased him down once on this journey, and Jacob has talked him down once. He's not sure he could do it again, but for the sake of his family, he would try. Night falls, but Jacob doesn't go to sleep. Or does he? The text just says, Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. And this is where the mystery lies. Who is the man? One might at first guess that it's a fellow trickster, a would-be bandit looking for vulnerable travelers to take advantage of. A wilderness pirate, if you will. In which case, this episode would signal to us Jacob's vulnerability out here, where he can't talk or trick his way out of a mess. He is indeed vulnerable. He feels it. We feel it. But this wrestling match is too strange for the simplicity of a thwarted theft. It's vivid enough to be a dream, even a pandemic dream. And if your subconscious hasn't been dumping anxiety like toxic sludge during REM sleep every night for 10 months, I don't know how you're surviving this. And if it's a dream, well, then we could go a couple ways here. We could go with Freud. I put my amateur psychiatry hat on. With Freud, the man would be Esau, the brother Jacob will meet tomorrow after years and years of estrangement, the brother whose justified anger may yet open up a justified can of whoop-ass on this heel grabber. Or we could go with Jung. With Jung, the man is Jacob's own self his shadow side, his guilty conscience, his struggle to come to terms with all that he's done and all that he is yet capable of doing. Anyway, we interpret it. The two of them wrestle all night long. And at some point in the night, the man wounds Jacob, dislocating his hip, yanks his femur right out of his socket. And I have to confess that as stubborn as I am, I think that's when I would have cried calf rope or uncle or whatever our Semitic ancestors in faith would have said to make the adversary back off. But Jacob is not only tricksy, he's also tenacious as hell. And so it's the mystery man who has to ask for the draw as the sun peaks over the eastern horizon. Let me go, he says, citing sunrise as the reason. Perhaps he doesn't want to be recognized in the light of day. Jacob's gift for sensing and exploiting an advantage is strong. So he asks for a blessing from the man while still locked in mortal combat. And that's when we get an inkling that this wrestling match has no ordinary explanation, neither in the waking world nor in the landscape of Jacob's dreams. Give me a blessing and I'll let you go, Jacob says. And that's weird. It's like Jacob knows something that we don't yet. His instinct is confirmed in the next exchange, a kind of verbal wrestling match with the stranger. What's your name, the man asks, though we are beginning to suspect he knows it already. Maybe he just needs to hear Jacob say it with his own mouth. I am Yaakov. I am the heel grabber, the supplanter, 
the trickster. I am the one everybody says to watch out for because I am trouble. And the man says, not anymore. Isn't it amazing when someone sees you in a way that you've never been able to see yourself? Isn't it the loveliest of gifts when someone sees through the diminishing stories your family of origin tells about you from the moment of your birth? Isn't it a mercy when someone looks right at you and sees past the lousy things you've done on your worst days? Isn't it a miracle when someone looks right through you and sees into your heart of hearts and begins to tell you a new story of yourself? Isn't it remarkable? The scripture's repeated insistence that human identity is not immutable, that human beings are not the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow, that one of the good gifts of our human existence is the ability to become someone new, sometimes incrementally over a lifetime of transformation, sometimes resulting from one frantic night of struggling and sweating and shouting and suffering till new identity bursts forth from the chrysalis of our former self and we are as new as a wet-winged summer butterfly in the morning. Isn't that something, church? A word of grace embedded here in the story of our ancient ancestor who lay down one night, Yaakov, and got up next morning, Israel. For ancestor Israel, what new self greeted the sun that day? What kind of butterfly was he now? Well, the weirdness continues. Israel combines the Hebrew word for God, El, with a verb that means something like hold on to in the sense of not letting go. And if you take that one direction, Israel could mean God holding on to, God not letting go. Maybe most literally, God protecting. Or you could take it another direction where God holding on to could mean God contending, God striving, God wrestling. The vagaries of language make it equally possible that God is here the object, not the subject of the verb, so that Israel is holding on to God or striving with God or wrestling with God. What the one formerly known as Jacob says the man said was, you shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with humans, and have prevailed. Well, sure. I mean, of course, in Jacob's telling, he is the subject and thus the wrestler. How else could he tell it, given who he is? But either way, it's going to be okay. Because Israel can only wrestle with God if God is available for wrestling with. This new name is not just about who Jacob is and who his descendants will be. This new name tells us something new about God's self, too.
Now, if you've been paying attention, you might be wondering how God so easily slipped into this sermon. I mean, weren't we just talking about a man a minute ago? A man who is evenly matched by Jacob at that? How can this be the deity of the universe, the all-powerful one who promised Abraham land and descendants surpassing the stars of the skies? I have an idea about that. How about we receive this part of the story as an invitation to remember forward down generations of Jacob's family tree to another future embodiment of God, an incarnation so perfectly human that he can wrestle with temptation and grapple with oppressive empire and brawl with exclusionary religion and go to the mat with death itself. How about we recognize here a God who comes to us in human form, stripped of divine omnipotence, self-limiting to the point of real vulnerability in order to meet us where we are. I'm saying, what if incarnation was God's practice way before Jesus came from Nazareth to the Jordan to be baptized by his cousin John? Israel striving with God, God striving the subject and object, trading places like Olympic wrestlers, flipping each other back and forth, first one and then the other with the upper hand until the sun comes up and it's time to call it a draw, until it's time for everyone to understand that something new is dawning with this day. Both Jacob and God are not this morning as they were last night. It's time now for Jacob, no, Israel, the name by which all his descendants, Abraham's descendants, will be called forever. It's time now for Israel to meet his brother, his cheated, disgraced, enraged, dangerous brother. He moves to the front of his family. He musters all his courage, and he turns toward home. Again, Remember forward, Christians. When Esau hears of Jacob's arrival, and instead of waiting at home, runs out to meet him, falls on his neck in a close embrace, showers him with fraternal kisses of love and welcome and forgiveness and forgotten offense, does it not call to mind a future prodigal, a dishonorable younger brother in need of mercy, one who plans and prays and finally risks the wrath of those whom he has hurt the most? Home is where they have to take you in, right? Except you know they don't. <laughs> they really don't. It's no wonder that Jacob, on receiving Esau's shockingly gracious welcome, rubs his eyes in disbelief. Who even are you, he asks? Seeing your face today? It's like deja vu all over again. It's like seeing the face of God, Esau. Seeing your face is like seeing the face of God. And surely he means that the mercy Esau embodies reminds him of God's own mercy, but maybe also given the night Jacob just had, he's simply thinking how essential it is to not let go. 
to not let go of one's brother, even if fighting is all you have ever had, how valuable it can be to hold on to the beloveds God has given us, even when things between us have gotten so bad, we fear never putting broken relationships back together. You have striven with God and with humans, the man said to Jacob on giving him a new name, and you have prevailed, he says, though I quibble with that ruling, coming to a draw with a permanent mobility impairment, a painful reminder of your long night of striving does not really sound like prevailing, unless unless God who reckoned Abraham's trust as righteousness, could also reckon Jacob's doggedness as victory. Maybe that's all it takes to prevail in relationship with the Almighty and with humans. Not that we pin them to the mat for a solid count of three. Not that we flip them on their back in the rodeo arena and lash their feet together so they can't move. Maybe to win in relationship with God and humanity is simply to stay in the game. Just wrestle your heart out. Sweating and striving and shouting and suffering, if that's what it takes, but never giving up, never letting go, not till you get your blessing, as long as it takes, till you get that blessing. Some of y'all, I know to a certainty, are just that stubborn. Call you Israel. You have held on to God long past the point where so many others let go. You have been struck and hurt. Sometimes when I watch you walk into the big red barn, I notice with concern, but not with surprise, that you walk with a considerable limp. And I wonder how you have kept it up. What is it in you? What was it in Jacob that keeps you in the ring? And if you've done it with God, I trust you also know how to do it with your brother or your family of origin or your neighbor whose MAGA banner is still hanging from that fence or whoever it is for you the relationship that might be irreparably broken could be. But you know that the sun hasn't come up on that one yet. And you've still got a little fight left in you. All I want to say is, wrestle on, Christians. This life with God you've been called to is not for sissies. It's not for those whose instinct it is to roll over and give up. You are not the calf. You are the cowboy. I don't care what gender you are. Don't let go. Do not let go till you get that blessing, till you see the face of God and know yourself at home. Thanks for listening to That's What She Said. This podcast is preached almost always by our lead evangelist, Reverend Dr. Katie Hayes. Galileo Church has five missional priorities. We do justice for LGBTQ plus people and those who love them. 
we do kindness to those in mental and emotional distress and celebrate neurodiversity. We do beauty for our God who is beautiful. We do real relationship, no bullshit, ever. And we do whatever it takes to share this good news with the world God still loves. To support the production of this podcast and the ongoing missional priorities of this church, go to GalileoChurch.org and click on Conspire With Us. You'll have options to use your Venmo or PayPal or use your credit card or bank account. Any amount helps. And if you're kind enough to share your contact information with us, we'll continually send you thanks. Peace.